The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel with me, Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover your Miami Marlins every day, every hour, every minute, every second, counting down to the MLB trade deadline in our own way. You can find our full coverage on fishstripes.com. Go to fishstripes.com. Exclusive angles and content bits from it on each of our social media platforms. Just find Fish Stripes on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, where we're posting all of our content right here on this podcast channel. In addition to me, you'll find What a Relief, you'll find Fish Stripes Unfiltered, you'll find Big Fish Small Pod, my staff of contributors making this channel what it is. And we appreciate everybody for tuning in to our different show formats as we break down the Marlins from every angle. Thank goodness this yucky month of July is over, that this brutal weekend series against the Mets is done. This format for uh, episode will be different than our usual Monday stuff. Not doing uh, all the granular reviews of the past three games, because all three of those games against the Mets were pretty shitty. And frankly, we're at a time of year where it's all small potatoes. Um, I think we're a long time removed from understanding exactly where this season was headed for the Marlins and that these individual games, I'm going to be clued into every single one of them, but the actual results is not quite as important as perhaps it was during the first three plus months of the season. The trade deadline, as you're listening to this, will be Barely one day away, coming up on Tuesday at 6 p.m. A lot of different things the Marlins can do. It's almost a guarantee that they will do something that we were not anticipating. But the one key name in the middle of all this, perhaps the one biggest trade chip that could potentially actually be moved by the Marlins during this trade deadline is Pablo Lopez, number two pitcher in their rotation, one of the longest tenured players on this team. One of the most well-liked guys by his teammates, by fans, by the media, for what it's worth. And I was thinking to make this episode a pros and cons debate discussion about the idea of trading Pablo Lopez. Why they could do it and should do it. Why they shouldn't do it. And as I was putting it together, I realized that one list was a lot longer than the other. And the list that was longer was the cons, the reasons to not deal him, to hold on to him, at least for the remainder of the 2022 season. On the other side of this break, that's what we're going to do, breaking down the Pablo Lopez situation, all the factors going into this decision that the Marlins are about to make. Stay tuned. We start this off by asking simply, who is Pablo Lopez as a baseball player for the Marlins? That's an interesting question. It's been talked about a lot. That's an interesting question. In his fifth season with the team, been used exclusively as a starter with the Marlins. For all the experience he has, um, in terms of innings pitched and games started, he's top 20 in Marlins history, in the entire history of the franchise, as well as in wins above replacement, the actual value of his production over that time. And yet he is still just 26 years old. That's the kind of age where you can dream about players getting even better. There are some players that are just getting started at the majors at 26 and continue to grow and grow from here. But this season, about 
very similar to his previous two, if not a tick better in certain ways, even after getting his ass kicked on Sunday. And it really was, I think, by any measure, his worst outing of the 2022 season. Even after that, a 3.41 ERA, a 3.60 fielder independent pitching in 118 and two-thirds innings pitched. Incorporating this really short outing, he's still averaging about five and two-thirds innings pitched per start this season, and he's been really effective by every measure. He has been kind of undoubtedly the number two starter in this Marlins rotation here in 2022. He's not Sandy. He doesn't need to be Sandy because you need, at any given five-game stretch, you need five different starting pitchers, and he has been the number two for this Marlins team this season. That's good. Not as good as the fastball from Pablo, but still good. 0-2 pitch. He did. Froze him. Second time tonight, he has struck out the side. Nine Ks. What he does is it's not based too heavily on stuff. You know, he has one thing I've noticed, especially as this year has gone on, and as people have noticed, kind of a gradual slip in his performance after being amazing in April. He's been, for the most part, more average-ish as a starting pitcher ever since then. But I think one thing that, for the most part, with the exception of Sunday, that has kept him being really good is, well, kept him being, as I said, kind of average-ish, is the reemergence of this curveball that he has. His pitch mix. It's a four-seamer, a sinker, it, that signature changeup as well. And the, the other pitch that has been increasingly good for him in recent starts has been this curveball, one that he throws in the low 80s, sometimes the high 70s, that used to be more of just a show-me pitch. And for a while, it was a no-show pitch. He like wouldn't even use it. And now he's getting some strikeouts on it. He's getting some chases against both kinds of lefties and righties on this curveball of his, including throwing it 13 times on Sunday. He had more swinging strikes on his curveball than all his other pitches combined. So this is a guy that makes adjustments. Um, I think a lot of people are aware of his backstory, but this is a remarkably cerebral person, somebody that I guess, unlike a lot of players, would have been just fine career-wise if baseball did not come into the picture. He could have gone on to medical school. He could have been a doctor. Um, the way that he, as a Venezuelan Spanish speaker, has learned English and become so fluent in English, that is not typical of a person. It is hard to do at, at this stage of his life, and he has done it brilliantly. He's a great communicator, and he's a great an analyst of his own pitching styles. There's a lot of days that you're not going to have your A game, your best stuff, but you still have to find a way to you know, put up zeros, limit the damage. So even though a lot of things were not feeling good today, I think Jacob and I did a good job at just making pitches when we needed to, uh, keeping guys off balance. He he threw a guy on base, uh, trying to steal a base, and that's a huge help, you know. So I think you you want to be that you want to be like the kind of player that even when things are not going good, you're still able to give results and give your team a chance. So in that aspect, I think that never goes away. You know, it's competing, 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 and trying to give your, your team a chance. As we've seen, the way that he has evolved, the way that he has 
improved the commands of his four-seamer with Sunday not being in, that's being a bad example of it. In general, different things that we've noticed the last few years, he hasn't been exactly the same pitching profile over these three years. There have been, there's been like more of an emphasis on throwing his four-seamer up in the zone and getting whiffs on it. And as I said, the way that his curveballs kind of come in and out as a pitch that he could use, he's made a lot of interesting adjustments from start to start and even from season to season in order to sustain being a very good major league starting pitcher. He is extraordinarily cheap this year for the Marlins. They took him to an arbitration hearing, which was very unpopular um, and very disappointing in my eyes that he wanted $3 million. They countered with $2.45 million, and they couldn't bridge that gap. And they won the arbitration case against Pablo in order to lock him into that lower salary, which also impacts what he's going to make over the next couple seasons. So from the team perspective, why there should be no hurry to trade him is because he's going to continue to be a bargain next year as well. Um, I would estimate that his salary is going to easily double, potentially triple into like the $7 million range. And that's probably the upper limit for somebody that fell just short of all-star honors. For someone that I don't know for sure if he's going to make 31, 32 starts or whether they would be more careful with him because these are kind of, these are endings that he hasn't thrown before in a major league season. Like he had it all together and he's good enough to like very noticeably impact your team, and yet he is not quite enough of a standout in order to get paid very well based on the kind of archaic system that we use to compensate guys before they reach free agency. He's going to be a bargain next year, and he's going to be arbitration eligible the year after that, in all likelihood going to be, again, somebody that earns well below their market value before he's able to test the market two and a half years away from now. Something that I don't think we talk about much um, is that Sandy Alcantara, you know, the, the, the heart and soul of this team, I guess the um, most essential piece of this team for the foreseeable future, Sandy considers Pablo his best friend on the Marlins roster. Like He said that repeatedly. The relationship that they have, I think that has been covered more extensively this year than it has in years past. Both of them broke through to the majors. Well, I should say broke through to the Marlins in the majors during the same series, if you remember, in the middle of 2018. They came up together, and they have been kind of together throughout this entire thing. They, and so understandably, as guys that are at the same stages of their careers, about the same ages, that play the same positions, that go through a lot of shared experiences, it's not surprising that they are very close with one another. If you want to keep Sandy happy, um, I think it's not a small consideration that having Pablo around for this team would be part of that. So there's just another thing to just keep in your minds when you're thinking about Pablo's availability. So if you deal him, then where does that leave them with the rotation? Because the people that are pushing hardest for Pablo to get traded, they see the trade most, I guess, the most comparable situation was a couple days ago when Luis Castillo got traded from the Reds to the Mariners for a package highlighted by Noel V. Marte, who was, who is a consensus elite prospect 
um, a at the very least a everyday infielder in the majors and potentially an everyday shortstop in the majors with really great tools. And he was just the headliner of that deal going to Cincinnati. Also, Edwin Arroyo being another infielder whose stock has exploded this year. And there were two other even pieces in that as well that went to Cincinnati in the deal for a pitcher that has one fewer years of club control than Pablo, who is several years older than Pablo is, and somebody that I think missed a little bit of time on the injured list earlier this year. So the first place that my mind went, I'm sure a lot of you were the same way, is seeing that return and lighting up, envisioning Pablo being able to command something similar, if not slightly more, if not maybe a little bit less, but something comparable to that. I remind you, that was a package of players that have not been to the big leagues, and I think with one exception, guys that weren't even above double A at this particular moment, guys who aren't ready yet to impact winning at the major league level. The expectation is that a big incentive for trading Pablo right now is not just to get young talent, but specifically to get young position player talent with loud tools, with high ceilings, right? So to get players like that, um, it wouldn't be, naturally, you wouldn't really be getting rotation help in exchange for Pablo. You'd be opening up a spot in your rotation. So who fills that spot in the rotation right now? I mean, because of just a an avalanche of injuries with this Marlins team, there's, it's not quite the same jam we were anticipating even a couple weeks ago. Most most obviously, Max Meyer going down with a torn UCL that will require Tommy John surgery. He's not pitching the rest of ne- this year and unlikely to pitch at all even next year at the big league level. So he's out of the picture. Uh, you could go to Cody Poteet, who showed very exciting stuff out of the bullpen early in the year, and he did some spot spot start duty. He has an elbow issue that he aggravated. He's already on the 60-day IL. He's not going to be filling a rotation spot in the near future either. Other guys, uh, Trevor Rogers Should have gone to him a second. Trevor Rogers this entire year has been um, almost a realistic worst-case scenario with Trevor. He has just not looked like himself at all any points during this entire year, especially over the last two plus months. Um, we could go to, on a whole podcast episode trying to understand exactly what went wrong with Trevor. And ultimately, they reached a breaking point just a few days ago, um, allegedly experiencing back spasms during a bullpen session. I think that the main motivation placing him on the injured list is so that he can get some repetition, some go through some starts behind the scenes, you could say, or out of the spotlight down in the minors on a rehab assignment because what he was doing in the majors, one start after another after another was not working. and It was not the version of himself. It was not really recognizable from the player that we saw last year, at least in terms of results. You know, In a lot of ways, he did look familiar, and yet it wasn't working. Pitching, in many cases, is just such a difficult thing to prognosticate and to grasp, especially from year to year. There's so much volatility there. So we have Trevor Rogers, who I think almost everybody entering this year would have said that Trevor was ahead of Pablo in the rotation hierarchy based on the all-star season he had in 2021. And now you come to this year where they very quietly demoted him. 
That's what it was. They put him, they said it's on the injured list in air quotes, but this is a demotion. This is a demotion and they do it out of the way so that it's not quite as embarrassing for the organization or the player. So that's another guy you were counting on that could have really been fascinating to watch down the stretch of this year. And it's just not, he's in his own head and unable to contribute at this time. So he's not filling any rotation spots either. You have Sandy in the rotation. You have Braxton Garrett. You have Jesus Lazardo, who is coming off the injured list. Exciting to see him back in the mix based on what he showed earlier this year. And then you have a lot of question marks. You have Edward Cabrera, who is on the verge of returning from the IL as well. And But Edward, if you want to be fair to him, in the big leagues the last two years, there's been more bad than good to this point in his career. So these are important reps for him. I am about as intrigued to see him as anybody down the stretch of this year, but it's not a foregone conclusion that he's going to pitch well enough to stick in the rotation these last couple months of the year. Um, He's not somebody, he's a highly regarded prospect, but it's not like you absolutely need to move heaven and earth to get him into the rotation right now. Like He's not a reason why you should be going forcing yourself into a Pablo trade at this particular time because even include him and that's four that's a four-man rotation who else who else maybe Nick Neidert uh who was DFA'd by this same organization less than four months ago uh that that does not scream a trustworthy high priority starting pitcher to me Daniel Castano we need to see what happens coming off this concussion and he in my opinion should be even a lower priority than Neidert is we could do this for a while now, but because of the injuries, um, two guys, and also because of some other pitchers in the high minors that, let's face it, haven't been knocking down the door. You know, Brian Hoeing showed some things that were pretty interesting early in the year at AA and AAA, and he's been very meh for an extended period. Zach McCambly, an early round draft pick in 2020, he's been very mediocre this year and has not forced the issue either after entering this year as one of their better pitching prospects. They could use somebody like Pablo down the stretch of this season. Like they aren't exactly de- dealt with hard decisions at this point when it comes to their rotation. You know, he still has an, an obvious spot waiting for him down the stretch. And as much as you might be tempted to overreact to what happened on Sunday, allowing a career worst 12 hits and just two and two their innings, you, if you've been watching this whole year, um, he is he's he's good. He is good and I think he's a pretty safe bet to still be good the remainder of this year, health permitting. Last thing on that is based on all the names that I brought up, all the players that are already out with injuries and those that had been out with injuries and are just coming back, like Cabrera and Lazardo. I mean, to pretend that we have any idea which of these guys are truly durable or not, to knock on Pablo just because you've seen him get hurt at the big league level, um, that's nonsense. We don't really know. We don't really know exactly um, what leads to pitching injuries. It's something that I've mentioned on um, some of the other streams and Twitter spaces we've done in recent days is how disappointing this has been for the Marlins athletic training staff and medical team that all these injuries have piled up on them. They made up plenty of personnel changes over the offseason, tweaked some methodologies and philosophies and best practices on how to keep guys healthy. At the end of the day, it doesn't it hasn't really worked. It's been 
a lot of critical players suffering significant injuries in a variety of ways under careful watch, even guys being treated with kid gloves, and yet it is unable to stave off the unpredictable reality of injuries, especially for pitchers in Major League Baseball. To think that these next guys coming up are going to be more trustworthy, more consistent health-wise than Pablo is, we have no idea. We have no idea, and in the grand scheme of things, the fact that Pablo has made the majority of his starts in one, two, three, four, four straight seasons, even the years where he's missed time due to injury, the fact that he's made the majority of his outings, that he hasn't required a single surgery, I don't think, since undergoing Tommy John when he was a teenager in the Mariners' system, relative to what all these other guys go through, you know, Pablo isn't quite as fragile as sometimes he has a reputation for being. One other thing I wanted to touch on was the importance of games over the remainder of the season. So as I'm recording this, heading into this new week, the Marlins are 47-55, and 55, awfully similar to where they were last year. It's just a couple games ahead where they were at this stage last season. After the trade deadline last season, the team went into sort of a soft tanking situation. They plummeted during that month of August. I remember that long losing streak. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. That losing streak um, in the second half of August as well, and right near the end of the year in late September, they had a couple really, (laughs) really nauseating streaks of unwatchable baseball down the stretch for a team that was out of contention and was in a situation where uh, I think they could get away with being really bad and not be totally destroyed because of it. This year is a different story. I mean, even if you're in a similar situation at the deadline as the year before, where I think a lot of people hope to see them trading some veteran players in order to replenish young talent with more complementary pieces as well, this team cannot lose 95 games again. Um, They can't tank again for a top 10 draft pick. That doesn't matter. That is not a high priority at this stage of the organization's rebuild. The fact that they're still like in a rebuild five years into this, that itself is infuriating. They need to win games down the stretch because uh, if they don't, then you have to question like everything. If they don't have enough homegrown talent at this point, well after making so many of their most impactful trades, um, after a long time into drafting their own players, having already made high draft picks in 2019. And if none of those guys are contributing to this point in the year as well, um, and they're losing games, then all of a sudden you have to question like almost all levels of this organization and whether anything they're doing is actually on the right track. This is a way of saying they need to try down the stretch, regardless of who's even on the roster. The combination of homegrown players and newly acquired players that they get on the deadline, it is important to show um, the players on the team um, and, of course, to show the fans that this team has taken a step forward from last year. One reason why I myself was very skeptical about their postseason chances this year is simply looking at the history of teams that make the leap from 95 losses to being in the postseason. It is an anomaly when that happens for this Marlins team, even one that went out of its way to make some improvements. 
if they are in the same situation again, then you look forward to 2023 and you see a team that unfortunately uh, squandered away a good chunk of their financial flexibility last offseason. They paid um, a good amount of money for Soler and Garcia combined. Neither one of those contracts are on its own debilitating. Combined, Garcia and Soler, I don't think enough people will hammer this home. They are going to combine to earn $27 million next year for players that we're not even confident make the team any better. That's $27 million tied up in those two guys who, by the way, also play positions that many of their homegrown top prospects play or former prospects, whether it be Jesus Sanchez and J.J. Bleday and Peyton Burdick if you're optimistic about Griffin Conine, Gerard Encarnacion, they have a lot of, they had a lot of internal options there that would have been earning the league minimum. They invested instead in these two guys thinking they'd be substantially better than the homegrown options. And at least this year, and probably heading into next year, you can't be confident that these guys are in a big way going to help yourself win. They have a good number of arbitration eligible players like Pablo and others who are going to be earning raises next year. Um, based on the salaries they had in 2022, there's just not a ton um, that I don't think ownership is going to sign off on them doing to go outside the organization to spend and improve that way. It's going to fall a lot on the players that they already have in-house because of the injuries that I mentioned to some of the young starters. Um, And what I've seen is kind of a stubbornness from this organization to not spend much money on pitching whatsoever. Outside of extending Sandy, like they have shown no appetite for signing free agent starting pitchers at all, at at any point ever since this new ownership took over, they believe in what they have internally, but because of the injuries and because well, we've seen some mixed results when these young guys actually do reach the big leagues, there are are there five starters in this organization that are going to be. As good as Pablo next year, I think that's extremely doubtful. That's the one thing that people take for granted is that even though they have a lot of prospects that do have the potential themselves to be above average starting pitchers, when you look at the probability of the outcomes of them actually reaching that level, I'd say the the majority of them are going to settle in as something significantly less than that. And even when you have five guys that you really love, those not all five of those guys are going to be healthy for the entire season. So Pablo, I believe, would be meaningfully better than whatever organizational um, do whatever like young guys they throw into the fire at the same stage next year. So if there's any incentive to win games in 2023, and I think we believe that to be the case. Um, all indications are that the team is not going into a new rebuild right now. They're not like they're not like starting over again. Like any concern about that is un unjustified. Is um is is not that should not be on your radar. Like this team realizes that, or this team feels that they should be making some sort of competitive push heading into twenty twenty three, which means. That, in my opinion, it's a fairly easy call to hold on to Pablo. You need to figure out another way to improve this organization. I have an article up on fishstripes.com that included six different trades I'd like to see at this deadline that I feel would put together a, a roster 
and a high levels of the farm system that are more complementary than they were um, previously as well. Like there are little things they can do that would actually, when you put them in the aggregate, I think make a difference in terms of actually winning some games down the stretch in 2022 and setting them up for next year as well in a position where heading into the offseason, that's when they can make their pretty big splashes. It's not, they don't need to trade Pablo in order to get something big in return on the offensive side, especially somebody that could play up the middle at either center field or shortstop. These pitchers they have, a lot of whom unfortunately are hurt at this particular moment, um, and as well as some of these young position players whose stocks may be slightly down at the moment, like there are going to be exciting possibilities that they can look at this offseason as well. You know, if one of Lazardo or Cabrera pitch well in the majors over these final couple months, if Khalil Watson gets his head on straight again, if um, if Yidi Cape continues what he's doing in the minors, I wanted to shout out him um, as somebody that has very rapidly been like rounding into form as a potential top prospect in this organization. If he continues to mash in full season ball with Jupiter, like it, it's not going to take all that many, um, it's not going to take too much in order for the Marlins to have like a, a really deep potential collection of tradable prospects to use in order to acquire somebody established at one of those key positions up the middle. You don't need to trade Pablo. I think he's more trustworthy than people think. And I think the alternatives to Pablo are not as safe as perhaps they're being made out to be. So I I hope that covered a lot of why I feel it's important to hold on to him at this particular time as they're going, they could get good talent in return for him, but it's almost certainly going to be good talent without any substantial major league performance under their belt. You know, um, there's been, I think this message has been, hammered home that if they do trade Pablo, they absolutely need to get it right. Um, given the recent history of the team trading controllable players uh, earlier than they needed to and ending up with hardly anything to show for it at the major league level. Uh, I think there's a certain scenario where they could trade him and the return makes a lot of sense. And that um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's black or white, that it's absolutely un unreasonable to consider moving him but based on what I think is realistically what they would get in return um, and given the, the direction that the organization is headed in and the context that we're in I think they'd be better off just holding on to Pablo reassessing it in the offseason and in the meantime they do have a lot of different directions that they can go at this deadline again this podcast episode isn't long enough for me to go through all the potential scenarios that they could explore at this deadline involving both major league veterans and as well as some prospects this um 40 man roster crunch that they're facing in the offseason is very real they have some players uh, on the pitching side on the hitting side that are basically major league ready and yet don't really have obvious roles on the major league team and come the offseason when these injured guys get healthy and need to be injured major leaguers get healthy need to be reinstated to the 40-man roster it's going to be tough to find spots for all these players 
So you can look into dealing them right now and consolidating them into a very intriguing piece in return that you trust a little more than any of these prospects individually. I'm excited to see how it goes. I have no idea exactly what this team is going to do. I don't think anybody does. Like That's been the one common refrain from Craig Mish, from the national guys like John Heyman, is that the team is listening on just about everybody, that nothing is imminent as of this recording on late Sunday night. It's going to be wild, and uh, when it happens, when the deals happen, it's going to go pretty close to the deadline day, so we're not going to have a whole lot of time to make our up our minds about whether we like the moves that they make or not. Um, there, For Kim Eng, um, as disappointing as this year has been, there are a lot of different directions that she can go to try to redeem herself. We'll just have to wait and see. I'll finish off with that on Kim Eng, because what I've noticed is that the way that fan sentiment about her has flipped is it's flipped pretty quickly. We're not yet two years into her as a GM. This is a position where you get a long leash to prove yourself, especially that first time. And at a stage where she's not even close to any sort of hot seat at this moment, there's just been a lot of really justified criticism of the way that she's gone about this job from how she expresses herself publicly to how she manages her internal options and decides when to promote, demote different players, and of course the transactions that she's made and what exactly she's trying to accomplish. When things have gone, have been unorthodox by her and unconventional, uh, the majority of them seem to be blowing up in their face. You know, a lot of these deals seem to be going wrong. And naturally, if you're doing something different and it's not working, then it's going to draw a lot of suspicion and criticism from our naive audience from the outside looking in. At the very least, hoping for a more interesting month of August than the month of July was. And I'm grateful for everybody that follows along, even with the team that has, as of this moment, like a 1% chance of making the postseason. Um, I implore you to stick around and continue to follow our coverage. These games down the stretch... They really do matter. They do matter for understanding exactly where this organization is at in the big picture. These, the performance of a lot of individual players, as well as the wins and losses, even, you know, they matter in a slightly different way than I think they have for the majority of this year. But I, I hope you stick around. I hope you continue to bring good questions and ideas for us to cover here on the podcast on our website, fishtrifes.com. This has been the official show with Eli Sussman. Rate and review the pod wherever applicable. Go fish and keep Pablo, please. Keep Pablo. Keep Pablo.